Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Do you ever wonder what does it take to build trust with people? Are you curious about how to maybe repair that relationship with a loved one or how to lead a team and build trust within an organization? Well, on today's podcast, I have Daryl Stickle. He is one of the world's leading experts on trust with over 20 years of experience. His PhD, Building Trust in Hostile Environments from Duke University, established him as a global leader for governments, businesses, and NGOs on practical approaches to building trust. And he recently completed his book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in Uncertain Times. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Daryl Stickle. Hey, brother, how are you doing today? I'm good. Better know that I'm hanging with you, buddy. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to have you on here, man. Uh, we had some some technical things uh, as they do, um, and I'm really excited to talk to you about trust, man. I think it's super duper important, um, not only just for the well-being and psychological safety, but it's one of the key key resources that having a more productive team and being being more performance focused. So, um, I'd love to just kind of kick things off here a little bit with talking about what got you so passionate about trust? What what was right. the genesis of this whole thing? So for me, I, I grew up in a small town in Northern Canada and it was fairly isolated. And it was, you know, the environment was hostile. So people had to pull together. There was this sense that, of community um, that I experienced. And, and then I had some, you know, fairly traumatic experiences through my life. Um, I guess the, the biggest one was, you know, 17 years old, I was playing junior hockey and I got jumped by a fan with a club, oh, wow. uh, beat me almost to death. And as someone, you know, I, I've, I've got a visual impairment, I'm legally blind. And I was, I was trending in that direction as a young man. And I, I knew that I had to train myself to be able to think for a living. And now all of a sudden, a big part of my identity was threatened my future was threatened because I had such a profound concussion. Um, and it, it was 1984. So people didn't know a lot about concussions. It was, you know, walk it off. You're going to be fine. And I, so I proceeded to get several more concussions and it taught me this level of empathy for others. You know, the, the understanding of, of potential sense of loss. Um, and so I, I went to school uh, at the University of Victoria and I would find myself sitting on the bus and someone would just sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. And so complete strangers would come to me and, and open up. And, you know, initially I thought if this is going to keep happening, maybe I should be paid for this. Um, so I started what, down the path what, towards what clinical psychology. Like, I know in clinical psychology, but I want, to, I want to pop into it. Like, what do you think caused the people to sit down and open up with you? Because that's not a normal tendency for strangers to do. What do you think about you or you, your style? There's something, yeah, there's something about my energy. And I'm a, like, I'm a fairly big guy. I'm 6'3", I, you know, 240 pounds. And at that time, I was about 200 pounds. But there was just some kind of energy that I was giving off that, that made people feel safe. Hmm. And... Uh, so people would open up to me and I wanted to understand that better because you're right. It's not normal. And, 
you know, I would have experiences where my a friend of mine and I would interact with the same person and get dramatically different responses. Um, and so there was something that I was putting out in the world that was making people comfortable, making them willing to be vulnerable. And so I started down the path towards becoming a clinical psychologist. You know, I was working with families in crisis and troubled teens and uh, working on crisis lines and, and trying to hone those skills. And then I came to realize that a lot of the people I was working with were really just doing the best they could. You know, that, that you could see a path forward for them, but they just couldn't get from A to B. And I thought this will drive me insane. And so I switched into public administration. I did a master's degree in public admin. And I was working in native land claims here in British Columbia. And they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government? Or what will British Columbia look like 50 years after claims are settled? Last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over 100 years they should trust us? And I thought, wow, what a good question. And it got me thinking about long-term disputes and why they're so resilient. And, and the fact that I was able to connect in a way that most others weren't, I wanted to understand and explore that and see if there were answers that I could get. And so I went to Duke and did my doctoral work at, in the business school there. And I had the good fortune of having a couple of the world's leading experts, academic experts on trust, on my committee. And after I finished my thesis, they sat down with me and they said, you know, you came to us and you said you were going to do your PhD on building trust in hostile environments. And, and we had a conversation and we said, there's no way he solves it. It's too big. We'll give him six months. He'll come crawling back to us. And they said, six months in, you were so far beyond us that we just couldn't help anymore. All we could do was sit and watch. And they said, here we are two years later. We think you've solved it. And so I left there and went to work for McKinsey, big management consulting firm. Mm -hmm. And they kind of said, wow, you've got the best client hands we've seen. We're going to send you to the worst places possible. You know, places where there's disputes, where people don't agree, where clients don't want, want us to be there. Um, and so I was getting a chance to practice some of that stuff that I taught people or that I'd studied and then I got injured I was involved in a car accident uh ended up with post-concussion syndrome uh and I just couldn't work those hours anymore and so I I leaned back on the stuff that I was good at I started a small company called Trust Unlimited and I gotta tell you Dylan the the reward is just so powerful when you're able to have a positive impact on people's lives um you know, and I've got some really powerful stories about uh, turning things around for folks, either in a work setting or uh, in yeah, let's, uh, personal let's, life. Let's start there, man. I think there's um, a lot of times people deeply want to get from point A to point B with trust, whether right. it is with a with a child or with a team member or with someone else in their life and they just don't know how to make that happen they don't know how to make the difficult conversation work or they end up in the same old patterns again and again and again so right. yeah i'd love to hear any stories and examples that you have to share around how you got someone from point a to point b and let's let's start in the workforce sure so i was working with a, a leader uh she worked for an organization that, that measured trust levels. I, I didn't, 
particularly like the measure they used, but the measure went from minus 100 to 100, and, and she got a 13. Um, and so her boss said, hey, I want you to lean in and talk to this person and see if you can't help her. And, you know, it, it wasn't a case of her not being a good leader. She was a great leader. Um, it was a problem with communication. And so I showed her the model that I use uh, and then talked to her and coached her for a bit. And then I got together with her team and said, here's what trust is. You know, trust is the willingness to be vulnerable when you can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. And there are levers that we can pull to build trust with other people. And here's what some of them are. And so I walked through with her team and I said, you know, three of the levers that come from me as an individual are benevolence, integrity, and ability. And those are the most popular ones in the popular press. So what is benevolence? Well, it's the belief that you've got my best interest at heart. So what could she do to show benevolence to you? How could you have a conversation with her that gives her a signal about what success looks like for you so that she can help you get there? And then we moved on to integrity. Integrity is the, the alignment between the actions that I take and the values that I express and also my follow through on promises that I make. And so I said, what are the, uh, what are the actions that she's involved in or that the company's involved in that don't line up? And let's have that conversation. And then ability is the last one, that confidence piece. Well, we all assume we know what good looks like, but we don't include other people in that conversation. So, so what would an excellent leader look like? And now I've given them a shared vocabulary. And after three months, they do another survey, found out that her score goes from 13 to 80. And she's been at 100 since. And so we've got this, this shared vocabulary, a bit of intentionality. We talk a bit about the context. You know, for me, trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. So when we're deciding to trust people, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. How likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty? And if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt, which is perceived vulnerability? And those things multiply together to give us a level of perceived risk. And so we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. If we go beyond that, we don't trust. But if we're beneath it, we do. And so building trust becomes fairly simple. It's where does uncertainty come from and how do I take steps to reduce that? Where does vulnerability come from and how do I take steps to help manage that? And so that we get below that threshold. And so that's what we did, right? We, we talked through the elements of uncertainty. We talked through the vulnerability that that team was experiencing. And you know, she's part of a, a global team and that team's all been exposed to this concept and they do very well in terms of trust ratings and client reviews because they've got a shared language and so, it just demystifies it. That's beautiful. So it's, it's a combination of reducing or increasing vulnerability on your side and increasing, un decreasing uncertainty on their side. So yeah. At it from that perspective of how do I be the one willing to go first in this equation, which will give them permission to then open up on their side, which is yeah. what happens. the other one is the, un the uncertainty piece, but let's start with vulnerability. Let's look at that. Right. So imagine you're a boss or imagine you have this difficult conversation and take a typical scenario. Uh, you, for some reason, uh, there is a lack of trust with the direction of where the company's going or whatever it might be, 
right? Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily uh, believe enough to put in the time or the effort or the willingness. And so they're doing that. Uh, there's a term for it. I forget the name of it. Quiet so, quitting. Quiet quitting, right? They resign, they sit back like that. So how does a boss address a situation where they're, they're trying to remove the quiet quitting? They're trying to, and, and using vulnerability. Can you talk me through a steps of a process and how that might work? So uh, for me, again, it's a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. And if we think about, you know, when we're at work, we have a certain set level of vulnerability, right? Where it's where we get our paycheck, it's where our friends are, it's where our self-esteem resides in, in part, it's part of our identity, it's the future, right? We think about the future and the path forward and those kinds of things. So we've got a fairly set level of vulnerability, but then uncertainty starts to bounce, right? And we've seen so much uncertainty when we think about changes in values and norms. We think about the pandemic. We think about race relations, political divides. All of those things are causing massive bounces in uncertainty. And so that means that over here on the risk side, it's going up and down and up and down, and it makes people incredibly uncomfortable. And so what they do is they try to find ways to be less vulnerable. They disengage. They look for other work. They you know, go through this quiet quitting phase. And, you know, part of the challenge here is that you know, the definition of what a good leader is has changed over the last decade. Um, and we don't really have a clear, consistent consensus about what that is, what a really good leader is. And it's a moving target. And so against that backdrop of profound uncertainty, you know, leaders have to evolve and grow and develop but that creates still more uncertainty. And one of the struggles that leaders have is letting go of the things that got them to where they are and stepping into the new skills because they're, they're terrified that they're going to make mistakes, they're going to screw up, they're going to you know, fall on their face. And the challenge that we see then is, is that they try to cling more tightly. They try to reduce their own uncertainty by micromanaging by increasing surveillance of their workforce, those kinds of things, which just dis, dis, causes people to disengage even more quickly. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what I'll advise for leaders is being a bit more vulnerable, right? By opening up a little bit and saying, look, we're all going through a challenge. Here's the challenge we're going through. These are the skills that, I'm, that I need to step into. I'm gonna make mistakes. And what I need from you is help to get better, feedback from you. I need an open environment where we can have collaborative conversations about how we get to be, get to be better as a team. And that gives the people that work for them permission to make mistakes and try new things and learn and grow and develop. You know, innovation doesn't happen without us making mistakes. And so organizations need to be more agile. They need to be more innovative. Well, that comes with us all taking risks, us all being a little more vulnerable and being willing to make mistakes and fall on our face every once in a while. So if a leader says, I think of being real or being vulnerable in the concept of, here's the new things that I'm learning, I'm doing, and I'm growing into. I will go from A to B, but along the way, I guarantee I will make mistakes. 
Yeah. I need your help. I need your feedback. I need your guidance when I make those mistakes to get from where I'm at to where we want to go. At the same time, then, you know, for them to get more engaged from the quiet quitting, do you make a request from them to say, this is where you're currently at, this is where I want to get you to? Or do you, how do you address the quiet or do you not address the quiet quitting part of the situation? Or you just say, hey, here's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to be showing up like this. I need your feedback. I need your help and your guidance. And then just by doing that, it will naturally engage. It's a bit of both, Dylan. It's, it's that modeling of I'm, it's okay for me to make mistakes, which means it's okay for you to make mistakes. But it's also getting them engaged in what does success look like for you? How do I help you achieve that here? And so that we get them more invested and engaged in being successful in that environment. And if success for you looks like spending two years here and being really well prepared to join the job market somewhere else, I'm prepared to facilitate that. And so uh, having more open, intentional conversations gets people more engaged. Higher trust levels get people more engaged. You know, the research around psychological safety, which I think is an outcome of higher trust levels, uh, gets people more engaged. And so creating an environment where they feel like they have some control, they have some influence, that they have the ability to grow and learn and develop for themselves is a way that we start to combat the quiet quitting and get people more enthused about. You know, and, and a good leader let's be clear, the more senior we become, the less direct control we have over outcomes. You know, senior leaders don't turn a wrench. They don't meet a client. They don't, you know, they don't do a lot of those front-facing things. They profoundly depend on the people they lead to achieve their goals and objectives. And so the more senior you become, the more important those soft skills become, the more important your ability to build trust becomes. And the more you need other people to be engaged. Well, you do that by showing that you're engaged for them. You know, that, that you have their best interest at heart. It gets them wanting to help you be successful as well. Got it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, they want to know that you have their back. And it's not just about the best interest of the company, but the best in interest of the employee as well. You right. Can say, where are you going? What do you want? How do I help you get to where you want to go? Right. And then you feel like you're you're both pushing on each other's dreams or whatever it might be, the goals in the right direction. Yeah, we're we're pulling together. Yeah. What do you think are what I would call threshold guardians? Um, in terms of the hero's journey, a threshold guardian is when you say, "Okay, I'm gonna build trust with this person. I'm gonna fix the relationship with my spouse, my kids, my employee, whatever it might be." Right. Yeah. What what are hiccups along the way, threshold gardens that really test you to see if you really want to build trust that are sometimes very difficult to overcome? So one of the most profound challenges I've seen is, is the willingness to be vulnerable ourselves first. Um, you know, one of the questions, so I, I raise my sons using the model that I use. And so that means that I include them in conversations around what does good look like for you? What, you know, so that I can show benevolence and have it land. Um, 
I, I'm careful about the promises I make. So I'm careful around integrity, making sure that I, I promise things that are within my control. So effort rather than outcomes a lot of times. But the, the most fearful conversation for me is when I say, what does a good dad look like? What would excellence look like as your father? Because I'm scared to death that they're going to ask for things that I can't do. And, you know, it's it's stepping into that fear and saying, I'm willing to, to go there and make myself vulnerable um, because the relationship matters that much to me. And a lot of times, you know, when I first started this journey of understanding trust at a deeper level, first I understood it theoretically. Then I started to understand it in a way that I could explain it. Then I started to understand it in a way that I could help others. But now, you know, we do workshops and, and partly in the book and uh, in the masterclass that I've developed, I really push people to practice because um, that seems to be where the real learning takes place. And so a lot of times just getting them to have a conversation, to start a trust-based conversation. And, you know, that when I explain it, it seems easy. But when you try to do it, it feels a bit hard. And so what I'll do is I'll get people to pick a trust buddy. And I'll say to them, you know, somebody outside the class uh, or outside the workshop. And you're going to talk to them. Your first exercise is going to be to have a trust conversation. And they'll say, well, what does that look like? You know, that feels kind of awkward and weird. And I'll say, okay, here's how you're going to start. This is the template. You're going to start by saying, okay, so I heard this guy, Daryl, he was talking about trust. And he said, it's a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. And you and I work together. And I'm thinking, what are the vulnerabilities that we have to each other? You know, partly I need your help to get tasks done. And I know how I'm vulnerable to you. How do you feel vulnerable to me? You know, the way I talk about you in the office, you know, how I help you be successful, those kinds of things. Those are the vulnerabilities, the overlaps that we have. Then he talked about uncertainty. And, you know, and I know some things about you because we've worked together for a while, but there's a lot of things I don't know about you. And so what would happen if we started to talk more about our personal lives or things that we that matter to us or things we care about? Um, and now you're having a trust conversation. And it's not weird and it's not awkward. And uniformly people come back after trying these things and they'll say, okay, so that felt clunky. It's a muscle I haven't worked before. It's what's like a new workout routine. But man, was the response positive. Like the other person was just in there trying to help me. And, you know, another example is we'll talk about benevolence. And so I'll give them a, a script and I'll say, you're going to talk about benevolence with your trust buddy. And you're going to start by saying, you know, this guy, Daryl, he talks about benevolence. It, it's having someone else's best interest at heart. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And the other person will say, yes, because we all have, right? They'll say, oh God, yes. You know, my aunt or my cousin or my coworker, you know, I tried to do something nice and they got all pissed off. And so the next phase of the conversation is to start to narrow the funnel and say, well, have you ever really had someone have your back? 
really care about you and, and show you that. And they'll go, yeah, you know, I can remember this time when somebody really looked out for me. Well, what did they do? And how did that feel? What did it look like? And now you're getting hints, right, about what benevolence looks like for them and how it feels for them. And then you narrow the funnel further and you go, what would it look like if I was benevolent to you? How, what does success look like for you and how do I help you get there? What are some of the things that I could do to make your life better? And now we've made it transparent, right? Because we can now cycle back and say, okay, so when we talked about what your what success looked like for you, this is what you told me. This is me trying to act that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So so you have it you talked about being a funnel. So you're talking about a funnel from these questions from not super painful and super personal down to we're talking about me and you and the vulnerability of the place and where we're going. Yeah. So then we're asking these questions at the top of, oh, you talk about a time that you've been benevolent or you've had experience from other people. Okay, now let's talk about us. Let's talk about right. our interactions, our vulnerabilities. And one thing that really clicked with me about the uncertainty piece was part of the uncertainty was not just about the future, but about your desires, your interactions, your personal life, what really makes you tick from an aside. And if you know personal things about me and my life, and what I do, you know, I have a wife, I have experiences, I live in certain places or whatever it might be, then you right. start to get a, a clear mental model of, of who I am and how I operate so that you'll know that if something happens, uh, uh, spill the milk, I'm not going to freak out and scream and yell or, or whatever it might be. You'll be better right. at being able to predict my interactions, which will create more psychological safety or trust with you because you know my interactions. Absolutely. And one of the things that I did that really hadn't been done much in the trust literature was, was to talk about context. Because mm -hmm. uh, uncertainty comes from two places. It comes from us as individuals, and that's the benevolence, integrity, ability levers. But it also comes from the context that we're embedded in. And so you think about, you know, we trust people without knowing anything about them at times. So you go to the doctor and they say, take off your clothes, and you do, right? We tend not to do that in other places. And, you know, if we take that example, say two people, and move them from a doctor's office to a gas station restroom, it goes from credible to creepy in a heartbeat. And so the context has a huge impact on how uncertain we feel. And we may trust people in some settings and not others. I mean, that depends. I mean, some people might feel completely comfortable taking off their clothes and the gas station bathroom you know it just depends on the person <laughs> there are outliers <laughs> that's why you got to know the person is like do you feel yeah. comfortable getting naked in front of a truck stop bathroom is that something that you might be open to just curious <laughs> just so i can understand a better mental model right <laughs> This does make sense, though, because context, right? There's certain, you know, if I wear a white lab coat, you're going to trust me more because I have some sort of authority figure status. And so what are different ways to show that you can build trust with people in environments that might create more, you know, uh, trust building environments, you know, uh, a quiet coffee shop for an intimate conversation versus a loud party event, for example. Right. I see that. Well, and, Partly, we can build trust by explaining our context to people. Mm. 
you know, by making it clear to them. So I'm a Canadian, I'm a dad, I, I have two kids that I absolutely adore. You know, the, my sons, Thomas and Alexander, are the center of my life. Um, I like sports. I, you know, so these are all ways that you start to get a sense of me and you get a sense of my context. Do I belong to different groups? What, what is some of my history? And so you start to build up a model, a mental model of predicting how I might behave. Um, what, about, what about this on this side of things to add those points? So we're having conversations, right? And say, okay, well, you know, my name's Dylan. I live in Long Beach. I've got a wife and all that stuff. I don't like sports. I prefer okay. video games, right? I know you like sports, but I feel the need to say I like sports, even though I don't really like sports. I I like playing video games instead. If you brought me to a, a football conversation, I'd struggle. So what would you say in that situation where I feel pulled to say one thing that's ingenuine just to get you to like me more? How do you handle that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you're right. There is social pressure for us, mm -hmm. uh, particularly if we feel that it's the norm, right? That there's more people who are feeling one way than the other. So if we're at a Republican rally, we're, we're probably going to articulate different things than we do at a Democrat rally. Yeah. Um, just because that's what the social norms seem to be. Um, I try to stay away from those and try to find places where we do overlap. Mm -hmm. You know, me knowing that you don't particularly care about sports, check. Okay, so I won't raise that a lot. Um, and, you know, you like video games? Oh, which ones? And now we've got an avenue to find overlap of interest. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we search for commonality because we tend to like people who are like us. Yeah, sure. And this is, I guess, one of the other places where I, I differ from the most of the trust research is that I include elements of emotion. So for me, there's, you know, the trust decision that happens where we've got uncertainty times of vulnerability leads to a level of perceived risk. The trust decisions are comparison of that risk versus the threshold. Then we have perceived outcomes. And we interpret the world through stories. So you and I may have the same experience and have a different narrative. And so that narrative feeds back into our next interaction. But in the middle of all that is our emotional states, whether we like or dislike each other. And, you know, if we like people, we tend to look for reasons to trust them. We search for confirming evidence. And we're more likely to trust them. We're more likely to see the outcome as positive, which can lead to these virtuous cycles. And if we don't like people, then we look for reasons not to trust them. And we have a different set of criteria for the outcome to determine whether it was good or not. And it can lead to these vicious cycles. That's where, that's where these long-term disputes seem to be so resilient is, is because when people, the more, the more emotional we become, the less rational we are. And most of the trust literature treats people like rational actors. And I, I've met people, you know, they're, they're not always rational. Um, and so, yeah. Let's look at this then. I'm going to try to do a twofer on this one. Okay. Let's just say you have a long history with your child and yeah. there's been a lot of strife and tension and they don't like you and you want to repair that with them and you're attempting to do that but of course you have different things maybe you believe in a certain religion they don't maybe they believe one thing and you don't right right how, how do you 
how do you start to build towards repairing that trust with a long tension, especially when family is involved and say, especially with say kids. So what does that, what does that look like? How would you, how would a parent approach something like that? So you, you've just come across the area that I'm most passionate about, which is uh, trust in kids. Um, uh, And I'll, I'll tell you a story. So one of my students in Luxembourg, he'd been away from home a lot. His kids were three and five. Uh, two boys. And he said, I'm completely estranged from them. Um, I I despair of the relationship ever being normal or healthy. Because I, I've been working in another country from just about their whole lives. And he said, every time I engage with them, it's, it, I, I get scared and frustrated. And I say the wrong things and I do the wrong things. And we spent a couple of months uh, just having intermittent conversations. I coached him a bit and showed him the model and got him starting to talk about how to be more intentional. Um, at the end of three months, he said, you know, my kids now run to me. They throw their arms around me. They tell me they love me. They, they fight over who gets to sit next to me at dinner. He said, it's a complete turnaround. And I've, I've experienced that a few times with clients that I've worked with. A lot of it is being intentional and, and so stop having them guess about your motivations, but make yourself clear and transparent. Mm. And you know, the, the challenge that we face as parents is that you're never more vulnerable than when your kids are involved. And so if we think about that model of uncertainty times vulnerability, you know, early in relationships, we've got high levels of uncertainty, which means we can only tolerate small ranges of vulnerability. As relationships get deeper, that uncertainty starts to shrink, which means the range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. Well, when we're talking about our kids, we're really vulnerable, which means we can only tolerate small bits of uncertainty. And we start thinking about the future. We start thinking about things that, you know, we're thinking about next week, next month, next year, 10 years down the road. They're thinking about right now. And so... We have to earn the right to talk to them about the future. And that means helping them be successful in the moment. And that means trying to understand their story, you know, stepping outside of our own story. And a lot of times when I deal with groups in conflict, I'll start by saying, okay, Dylan, what's your story? And, you know, maybe you've got a, let's say there's a guy named Chuck that you're having a hard time with. I'll say to Chuck, what's your story? of the relationship between you and Dylan. And then I'll bring you together and I'll say, Dylan, I want you to tell me what you think Chuck's story is. And this forces a bit of empathy on you and it gets you to start trying to articulate it. And it gives Chuck a chance to, to unravel some of the misperceptions that you might have. Mm. And then I flip it and I say, Chuck, tell me Dylan's story. And again, it forces a level of empathy. And so when we're struggling with our kids, one of the most powerful things we can do is sit down and say, what's your story? How are you? And, and just let them know, I love you more than anything. And I'm never more vulnerable than when it comes to you. And I don't always respond the right way, but it's because I'm terrified that something's going to happen to you. And it's that level of vulnerability, that opening up, you know, with my kids, I, I would say to them, 
I'm really vulnerable. I can't tolerate a lot of uncertainty. And so the temptation is to try to control you. I don't want to do that. So you need to let me know. You need to start helping me be less uncertain. You need to start telling me things. And they tell me things I never would have told my parents. Mm. That's beautiful. So part of it is being intentional and letting them know what's going on inside of your head. The reason why I'm making this decision is because I hold these values and these values make me take these actions because I want to have this type of outcome. Right. And part of that about earning the right to talk about their future, about the future, is by helping them become successful in the moment. The way you help them is by working within the situation. What do you need right now to be successful? How do I solve this issue that's going on right now with you to help you solve this so that they know over time you start to build trust and know if I go to daddy, daddy's solved all my problems in the moment, then I can talk about the future over time. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely bang on, Dylan. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. For you, for all the work that you're doing inside of the trust and trust and everything that you're doing, what is your holy grail? What is your flag in the sand? What do you hope to achieve by the work that you do? So the world is filled with some really big, hairy problems or wicked problems, as people call them. Things like race relations, climate change, the, the pandemic, uh, you know, political divides. And these are problems that we've created that are going to require collective collaborative action. We need to pull together. And the trust levels we see right now are the lowest we've ever recorded. And so what I really want is for people to understand that, that we, we can do better. We can create a better world together. We can solve these problems together. It's just a case of us approaching each other in the right way. Mm. These are skills we can build. And so, you know, if I had my druthers, one of the trust experts that I talk with, a, an academic, he said, I wish America could just sit and listen to you for a couple of hours. Um, and so what I would love is if people would, you know, not for the money, but for just the knowledge, if they would, buy the book, read the book, apply the concepts, or just go to my website, go to the blog section where there's free content um, and start to be more aware of how they can build better relationships with each other. That would be the holy grail for me. What is the, the if that's the holy grail is to get people to build better relations together. What is, I think we touched on a little bit earlier, but the dragon the thing that is so difficult to overcome that it's, you might need to change who you are to get that goal and make that happen. I think as human beings, we struggle with a bunch of things. Um, you know, we see a tendency to, to accept long-term pain for short-term gain. Um, and we, we're not good at connecting the feedback from something if it's not immediate, immediately attached to our actions. So I think we get in our own way a lot. Um, there's, there's a couple of places, you know, 95% of people believe they're more trustworthy than average. 
And aside from being statistically impossible, it also means that every time there is a, a difficulty, they assume it's somebody else's fault. Um, and so they don't take a moment to think about the role that they played. Uh, the biggest gap we see for leaders is between how much they believe they're trusted and how much they actually are. And so there's a lot of misperception. There's a lot of just lack of awareness when it comes to this. And, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, I didn't know people actually studied trust. I didn't know that that was something you could do something about. It is. You know, it's something we can change. It's something we can fix and, and make better. Um, we just need to be thoughtful. Beautiful. I love that. And I love the 99% of people believe that they're more trustworthy. And so that they, that in itself is the problem and which makes it them not really to reflect and be open, which is part of the connection vulnerability. I love it. So how do people, cause we're coming towards the end of the podcast here. How do people find your book? Where do they go to? What does that look like? So my book is available anywhere online. Uh, you can buy it at hard copy uh audible it's on audible so audio version it's also available as an electronic uh version um they can uh reach out to me uh daryl at trustunlimited.com or they can just go to my website and have a look around uh like i said there's there's a number of articles i've written there that people might find interesting uh and helpful there's one on trust and parenting there's a couple on leadership there's one on you know trying to repair the divide between police and the communities they serve. So there's there's lots of content for people to absorb. That's awesome. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate all your um, effort in the trust arena, uh, and uh, have a beautiful and blessed day, my friend. I'll see you on the other side. Thanks so much, Dylan. Take care now. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes or to apply to be on the show. If you're interested about becoming a coach in VR, check out Dylan's Becoming a Master Coach in Virtual Reality course at heroesofreality.com slash VR coach. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the other side.